Hey, good to see all of you today. We wanted to do something really special, so we uh, printed out all the lyrics today. Um, you know, it was all planned um, by God uh, eternity ago. So today we have it all printed out. So um, I, don't know, I have a novel idea. We should put it in a book and carry it around and call it a hymnal. Whatever. Anyways, um, so that was a joke. But uh, I'm so glad you are here. You know, today we look at the story about this memorable wedding. Weddings are all memorable, especially if it's your own. You remember that. Um, and uh, as you go and you see loved ones getting married, they're all memorable. Um, something good happens, and there's an emotional part and the fun part and all of that. Um, you know, I, I, I've been to so many weddings in my life. There was one that sticks out to me. And um, it's not for the uh, good reasons, uh, but... Uh, it was an old friend of mine, and I was in the wedding party. And so this is way back when I was in wedding parties and stuff, right? And uh, um, so I was in the wedding party, and they had, I guess, more people show up than expected, or the caterer made a mistake. But by the time we were done, and usually the wedding party, right, who's the last people to eat at a wedding? It's the groomsmen and bridesmaids, right? And uh, by the time we were done with all of our photo shoots that I'm sure he's really looking at after 20-some years, uh, you know, we come in and they had run out of food, they said. They said, we ran out of food, there was a mistake. And um, so I remember, and we were like famished. We were out there all day taking pictures, following him around. You know how it is, right, at the, those weddings. And, um, and we get there and there's rice, spinach, and bean sprouts. And I'm a meat eater and I was like, oh my gosh, where's the beef, where's the beef, where's the beef? And um, I remember trying to fill up on rice, spinach, and bean sprouts. I remember my wife, shared a little bit with me, so I was grateful to have a little bit from her. Um, but we ran out of food, right? And I don't remember anything else about that wedding but that they ran out of food, right? And, uh, and it still bothers me to this day. Whose fault was this, right? Who didn't bring enough food? Who, who didn't order enough? Um, and you might have had something like that, right? Then this is a, a very similar situation, but it happened in the days of Jesus. They ran out of wine. Um, and he does his first sign. And at this uh, in chapter 2, we see the story. Jesus is at a wedding. Um, the wedding is a big deal, obviously, like it is today, but it was something that lasted longer. It would go on for days. And they ran out of wine, and this was something you cannot do in those days. They ran out, and Jesus' mother comes running up says to her son. And it almost, it kind of, John writes it in a way where she already knew something special about him, right? We know that. And she says, do something. And he says, woman, the time is not now. And that's what we see here in the text. And, and then yet, she calls the servants over and says, just do whatever he says. You know, he'll figure it out. And then Jesus performs this miracle. He turns water into wine. And then everyone now... No one knows about this except for the servants, uh, Jesus' mother, and the disciples. And it was all kind of behind the scenes. And they serve it up. And uh, the wedding continues. And it ends up being a memorable wedding. Right? But this story teaches us something interesting. And I want to highlight three um, you know, things about this wedding. One is this, the location of it or the, uh, you know, the occasion it's a wedding. He decides to do it at a wedding. The wedding teaches us something. He uses jars. These jars have a certain meaning. And then thirdly, uh, he makes water into wine. He didn't do grape juice. He made it into wine, right? What does the wine mean? And so we're going to look at those three things. The wedding, 
the jars and then the wine, and they all have some meaning behind it. Right? It's not just they wanted to have a good, a nice wedding, uh, but there was a sign, and at the end of it, in verse 11, the disciples believed. And this was the whole point of John, that they would believe. And so they see this happen and they believe. Now, what does this mean? Um, it's interesting, right? He addresses her, and some comment, a lot of commentators have talked about, you know, he addresses her as woman in the reading. So they say, oh, isn't that rude? Why does Jesus call his own mother woman? You know, it seems so cold or bad. But really, this calling of her as woman is not a, a bad or cold term, as it might sound in English. You don't call your mom woman. You know, are you, you know, what do you want me to do? Jeez, again? You know, Thanksgiving, you know, again? Woman, you know, woman, right? No, it, but it's a term that means something like ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Um, it's a respectful term, an endearing term. It's interesting, John doesn't use her name. Even at the crucifixion, he doesn't use her name. Because John, some commentators, because John want, doesn't want the reader to be confused. There's other Marys in the life of Jesus. He doesn't want the reader to get confused. So he, she's the mother, the woman, the mother. And the wedding happens, and they run out of all this. You know, um, it's not so much that Jesus saves them from embarrassment. And it wasn't just, oh, gosh, what, it was embarrassing that they ran out. The weddings that would happen would last for sometimes, like I said, seven days or so. Um, but back in the culture, and one of the commentators talks about this, right? There was a strong element of reciprocity about weddings. That means... People are spending their money, and they're coming, and they're giving. And if they don't get back something, literally they can sue the wedding uh, party, or the wedding party could sue the groom and say, hey, I want my stuff back, man. Can you believe that? Can you imagine if that happened today? I mean, I would have lost a friend 20-some years ago. Hey, where's the food? I want my money back, right? I rented this tuxedo. I paid for it. I want it back. You know, I just had spinach. I, you know, this isn't good enough. But they could literally sue. So it wasn't just a little bit of an embarrassment. A wedding brought the whole town together, represented everyone, and everyone came, and it saved them from so much. And here he picks, you know, starting in chapter 2, John wants to make sure we, the point of the Gospel of John is so that we might believe in Jesus and have life. And so he wants to tell us stories. And in the Gospel of John, there are a series of seven signs and this is the first one, signs or miracles that he does that point to something greater. And this is the first one. And he happens to do it at a wedding, the first miracle. Does it at a wedding. Now you would think, uh, maybe he should have done it somewhere private. Maybe he could have done it on the sea or in the mountains or with just the disciples. But he does it at this social gathering at a wedding. Why does he do it at a wedding? It wasn't just a mistake. It wasn't just because the opportunity happened to show up. It was intentional. The wedding meant so much. The wedding pointed to how now God will send the bridegroom to be with the bride. The bride represented Israel or the people of God, the church today. So how now there will be this joining, this union. And so everyone was looking forward in the Old Testament days, New Testament even in John chapter 3, in the very next chapter, John the Baptist keeps pointing. He said, I'm not the bridegroom. And so there is this language of the bridegroom that is to come. 
And here he says, oh, it's a wedding. It's a perfect opportunity to demonstrate this. And he says, hey, this is who I am. So John the Baptist in chapter 3 says, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm there as a friend, and I rejoice. I'm a groomsman. Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the one that comes. So this is why it happens at a wedding, I believe. This is to show the picture of the bride, the people of God, and the bridegroom, Christ, coming for the bride. Um, and we see this here. Um, you know, so in John chapter 3, 28, 29, 30, um, this is John the Baptist. He says, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. All right, that famous verse. So John the Baptist makes that confession. In the prophets, in Isaiah 62, verse 5, it talks about the, the, the joyful day that will come in the future. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So there is this talk about this. Now we have to ask, why, why do they use this particular illustration for God and his people? What has this got to do with this? You think about it on human terms, right? This is kind of this very interesting thing that we as humans do. We, we have people get married. Um, now, we have many other relationships. We have friendships. We have siblings that we are born into, right? You can't pick your siblings. Boy, they're just given to you. And sometimes you love them, and sometimes you really love to hate them. You know, it's, it, you grow like that. Parents... You're given your parents, you're given your grandparents, none of these things. But think about the husband and the wife. The bride and the bridegroom are two people who were strangers. And the two strangers now come together and they become the closest in all of the human relationships. They become the closest. So sometimes after a while, you even see couples that start to talk alike and look alike. And boy, they could complete each other's sentences after the decades of being together. But... Think about that. That is very peculiar. you got two strangers who didn't know each other. And then they get married. And as the years go on and as they keep this covenant, they become the closest of all. Closer than even a, a parent-child or a child-parent or a brother and a sister. They become the closest. And so this is the perfect illustration of how Christ comes to us, that we were strangers to him. Uh, it's not like we were born and related to him. We were far from him, and he comes to us. And, you know, in the days when they were getting married, as I mentioned, it, last, it would last sometimes seven days. And they would be betrothed, or, you know, it's kind of like engagement, but there was more of a binding back in the day. So you would have a, uh, they would be betrothed to marry each other. And then when the wedding would happen, and often in those days, uh, the wedding would be on a Wednesday night, and there was a whole uh, ceremony before. But the groom and bride wouldn't see each other until the Wednesday night. And there'd be a big procession through town, you can imagine, with, you know, lights and people and music. And they would all go to the bridegroom's home, and they would now escort the bridegroom over to the groom's house or wherever the wedding would be. And there they would meet each other now after not seeing each other. And they would come together. So we have, we fake it today, right? Um, you know, brides and grooms, they know everything. They see each other um, prior to the morning of. But they're supposed to be now the entrance of the bride. 
and it's supposed to be now the first time the guy sees and um, you know a lot of times good wedding photographers try to capture this moment even though they've seen each other you know that morning and just a little bit ago but they try to capture wow the first you know time he sees her in the dress and the guy's thinking about how much was that dress no I'm just kidding but uh, uh, and they're, they're getting to get you know it's the first time and so here this is the first time the unveiling the coming together of the revelation of the bridegroom and so he does this at the wedding it's the picture of the relationship of God and his people and he's saying it's now happening Christ is here and the disciples are just soaking this in, and they're saying, oh my gosh, is this what was talked about in the prophets? And he has called us, and now two who were strangers have become now the closest. This leads to a covenant relationship. Covenant. A contract, right? It sounds so unromantic, if you put it this way, but that's what it is. Why this is so important. A covenant means that we keep our promise. And, you know, at the weddings, you'll hear the bride and the groom share their vows to each other. And they'll say to each other, you know, I'll do this and this and that. And I'll be this and this and that until death do us part. And that's the, uh, they share their vows to each other. Um, this covenant, the groom says to the bride, I will be with you forever. And there is no separation and there is no divorce. This is something that we ourselves can't even lose. So when it comes to the concept of our walk with God, our salvation, because we're in a covenant relationship, we cannot even lose this, even if we tried. And trust us, trust me, think about this. If we were able to lose our salvation, all of us, all of us would have lost it already. All of us. Oh, our hearts wander. Our thoughts wander, our faith comes and goes. But because his side of the covenant relationship, he keeps, it's there forever. You know, so, you know, like John chapter 10, 28, when Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This picture of the shepherd holding the sheep. No one could snatch them out of my hand. Even on myself, I can't snatch myself out of God's hand. He who began a good work in you will finish it to completion. He will be there till the end. And so this is this beautiful picture of a covenant of the groom saying, Now I will take you from your old life and I will bring you into my life and I will be faithful to you forever. And this is now coming together in John chapter 2, and it's a glorious scene. Not everyone understands, but the disciples are getting this, and we have the privilege of seeing this. And then he uses, the second thing that I want to highlight is he uses the jars. It's interesting, it's not just any jar. The jars are described very carefully. You know, it tells us in verse 6 that there were six jars. They were made out of stone. Um, they were there for this purpose, for Jewish rites of purification. And it even tells us the size. They were 20 or 30 gallons, right? The ESV translates it to our, our language. So we get an idea. These are big jars. It's not a little jar, right? It's a big jar. The jars gives us a picture of Jesus making us righteous. This whole, the jar represented, boy, purification. 
It represented now the old way of doing things and the misunderstanding that the Jewish leaders had put into these jars and water, that this is now an outside cleanliness that will lead to an inward forgiveness. Now, Jesus says, no, no, we're going to change all of that. And he particularly uses these particular jars to get this across. You know, each house, uh, you know, would have a jar outside their home. It's just kind of necessary for life. And they would wash. And uh, when they would have a certain ceremony or a certain special day, they would wash. And it would be for not for uh, hygiene, but it would now just be for uh, ceremonial religious cleanliness. And they would do this. And so when they would have a wedding and they'd have to bring all the jars because all the people in town are coming, all the religious leaders are coming. They would have to go to their neighbors and borrow not just one or two, but they would have to borrow six of them. And they would fill it up with water, and people would now pour water as they come in. And it wasn't to wash their hands from the germs. It was now to cleanse their sins temporarily before they came in. And they would wash, and they would wash, and then they would come in. And Jesus goes, and so people, the commentators are all over this. You know, the scholars talk all about this. The jars were empty. It talks about the emptiness of the old way, the Jewish way, the way that the Jewish leaders were doing forgiveness. It was an empty ritual. There's one part of it. But the idea that this, these six jars held this water, and the water was just an external demonstration. You wash your hands and you put it. But the wine that replaced the water was something you would take inward. Something changed on the inside. The Pharisees and the religious people were concerned with the ritual on the outside, how you behaved on the outside. But Jesus said, it's not about the outside. It's what's on the inside. And he changes it with something. Out of the jar comes something now that I take in. No longer is it just on the outside. And he would do this. And so, yeah, you know, later on you could look at Mark chapter 7, for example, and the... Um, some of the disciples ate and they didn't, you know, their hands were unwashed. And the Pharisees and the Jews, they all come and they're, you know, having a big discussion about this. They're upset about this. And Jesus uses that opportunity to teach, hey, it's not about the outside. It's what's on the inside. Because I come to bring this kind of salvation, you know, when... The times I've been to Japan, and we, you go, one of the things you go do in Japan is you go visit their temples, their Buddhist Shinto temples, because they, the grounds are so nice and it's beautiful, and it's such a contrast to the big city. So you go walk around. And I, I've shared this before, but when you get there, and some of you have done this and when you've been, on, been there, but you know, they have these washing areas. And you go and you take these little bamboo ladles, and then you wash. You're supposed to wash your left hand, your right hand. You're supposed to take it. You're supposed to pour some into your hand, technically, and you're supposed to gargle, blah, 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 and then you're supposed to spit that out, right? And then you're supposed to rinse the handle of the ladle and then put it back. And that was your temporal forgiveness before you enter into the temple, before you get to the, where the gods were, that you would somehow be cleansed of this. You see this today uh, in India with the Hindus where they come to a body of moving water or living water and they would come to the Ganges for example and the thought is boy if this water is moving it takes all of my impurities and it takes it away so people are diving in head first and the irony is it's one of the dirtiest uh, bodies of water 
And yet they would go in, and so they would make pilgrimages, and they would go and find cleansing, somehow to find a forgiveness of their sins. It would remove all of that. You see this even in the Catholic Church where they have holy water as you're coming in. And you take the holy water. And I was at a funeral a few months ago of a friend that it was at a Catholic church. And all the faithful there were taking now the holy water. And they had a jar of holy water for sale. And you would take the holy water and you got to do the sign of the cross. And when you look up their theology, it's the removal of the venial sins that you might have committed. Right? It's somehow it's a cleansing again before I go in. Now, Christianity is the only one where the water, the baptism, happens after the forgiveness, not to get forgiveness. You get baptized, and there is nothing special about our water, right? When we have baptism, as Pastor Sam mentioned, on Christmas and on Easter, there's nothing holy about the water, right? And it's just bottled water from Costco or wherever it is. It's just, it's, at least it's not tap water, okay? So it's filtered water, and it's just water. And the dish we use, it's something you buy. They have a church, you know, furniture store. They have things like that, right? Can you believe it? Places we shop as pastors. And, and so you buy that and you put it in. We don't bless the water, pray for the water, warm up the water. Nothing. It's just water. But it is a symbol of what happened already. Whereas the religious of the day, even back in these days, said, no, go cleanse yourself to become acceptable to God. Go do something good. Go through the ceremonies. And Jesus said, oh, I come to do something new. The baptism you will do, you will be baptized as a command, as an obedience to God. But that doesn't change anything about you. It's an outward now demonstration of what already had happened. So we say, this already happened. I don't have to get baptized for something to happen. There's nothing magical in the water that they use at the church. But it is an outward symbol of what happened to us. And then he uses wine out of all things. There are some um, that believe, boy, you know, you should prohibit. All Christians should never drink alcohol. There's something bad about this. And there's problems like this. The Bible keeps talking about wine and things like that. He uses wine. Wine is a symbol. It is used by God. You see it all over the Old Testament. Um, wine represented the abundance of God's provision, the joy of God. Someone said that uh, bread, where bread is something ordinary to the people, wine was something special. It's a symbol of joy a symbol of celebration. It was so important that when they would have their feasts, the Jewish people would have their feasts, they would provide wine for everyone, and the poor who couldn't afford it, then they'd have to make sure they had it. It was a, it was a symbol of God giving us something special. And so on a human level, right? Psalm 104, verse 15. Wine, he gives us wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, bread to strengthen man's heart. It's talking about all, he lists all of God's provisions, all the good things he gives us. So on a physical level, it's there for that. But up more on a spiritual level, the prophet Amos talks about the day that will come, the day of the Lord that will come, 
what everyone was looking forward to, and this is now happening here in John chapter 2, Amos 9, uh, 13, it talks about a day when the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. So it's a picture of God's abundance to us. God giving us something special, something that is, boy, not just the ordinary bread, but this is special. So when we have the bread and the wine and we celebrate, it's all connected. We see this, right? And he gives us this. Um, so God gives us the life in Christ, which is like this wine. And he gives it to us to give us a joyful life. Um, and you look at this in verse 6, 7, 10. You get a picture of how much wine he gives us. First of all, uh, each of these jars held 20 to 30 gallons. There were six of them. So if you do the math, right, uh, 180, is that right? 180 gallons. Boy, this is kind of excessive, wouldn't you say? It wasn't like they ran out of wine and Jesus said, oh, yeah, I'm going to run to you know liquor store. I, I'll get a few boxes of wine, right? Or whatever. I'll get a few. Here, here's a few bottles of wine. No, he says, uh, uh, I'm going to just, all six, yeah, let's, let's, let's do all six. A hundred, this is the sign of abundance. So when he makes water into wine, there is now an abundance. The new Christian life is talking about a life that is filled with abundance of joy in Christ. Not only that, he says in verse 7, fill the jars with water and they fill them up to the brim. They filled it up. He wanted to make sure it was full, and he changes all that water into wine. He is telling us that he gives us the joyful Christian life, and not a half-empty one. Not something where the jars are half-empty and you have to put other things in, but it's full. Your joy is full in Christ. As a Christian, your joy is set. It's full. You can't add anything on top of this. It's filled to the brim. And he tells us the quality of it, right? In verse 10, they serve it. And the um, master of the feast or the MC or the person in charge comes and he says uh, in verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Right? That's what everyone would do. They've had a few glasses and they're feeling good and bring in the cheap stuff. And that's what they would do. Because, But you have kept the good wine until now. You're, this is better than the first stuff we gave out. This is better than what we toasted over. This is backwards. And it reminds us the quality of this. The quality of the Christian life. It's, he gives us joy abundance. He gives us joy that we don't need to fill anything else with. He gives us joy that is of the best quality in this way. So we don't need to do this, you know. Um, last month I had a went to a, a birthday dinner with a friend for a friend, and uh, we ended up um, going to Fogo de Chao, right? Some of you guys have been there, the Brazilian all-you-can-eat place. And uh, now some of you are getting kind of hungry, right? It's like, oh man, I didn't eat breakfast. And we went there, and you go there, you go to this place, and they have like you know, the, the filler zone, right? This is like stuff you want to avoid. This is like the bread, rice, beans, you know, salad, whatever. Like, you want to avoid this section, but they bring the meat. And they bring the meat, and he's 
telling me, oh, wait, 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 don't get that one. Don't get the, don't get the, so, you know, the good stuff. And he's asking, and they're bringing out the good stuff. And, you know, so we're eating, eating, you know. Um, and uh, we walk away, like, jam-packed full. Like, you know, if our stomachs were jars, it was just filled with meat, right? Filled with meat, with little bits of, like, tomato and onion. But really, it was just meat. I mean, it wasn't rice and the bread and this. And, you know, at the end, they brought out, you know, the plantains. Oh, you want to try some? I'm full. You know, it's up to the brim. I can't have it anymore. Like, I need to walk. I need to move or I need to take a nap. Like, no more, no more, no more, right? Uh, we stayed away. You know, but yeah, I look over and there are rookies that are going to now fill it. Oh, beans and rice, beans and rice. And they're getting it. I'm like, You're paying $55 for beans and rice, beans and rice. Oh, it's so good. And they're getting this. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> they don't know. Why are they here? They should just go to Taco Bell for beans and rice, right? Why are they here? But you think about this. You think about the things that you craved so much five, ten years ago. Think of yourself ten years ago. How old were you, right? Think of the things that when Christmas ten years ago and the things you were so excited about. Your first flat screen TV. Oh, my gosh, this is great, right? This is awesome. You know, your first flip razor cell phone. Oh, this is great. I get to close it and open it, you know, and things that we were so excited about, right? Whatever it was. And now you look at it and say, well, I don't want any of that. You look at the clothes you were wearing back then, you say, it's kind of embarrassing. Why did I even wear that? It was too loose back then. It should be tight. No, it should be loose. Now, whatever it is, right? Jesus gives us a life filled with joy. The wine here represents this joy. And the joy is filled up in our lives. And we don't have to add anything to that. This joy is so great this is the one-of-a-kind type of joy that uh, Peter calls this a joy that's inexpressible in 1 Peter 1.8. It's so great, there aren't words for it. There's a joy that my future is set regardless of what happens today. There's a joy. There's a joy that even in my suffering, I can rejoice. Now, there is no kind of joy like that in this world. Even when circumstances are not going my way, I am filled with joy because He is with me. And then the disciples, in verse 11, the disciples believed in him. He said, oh, I think we get it. Wow, that was a special sign. And they're putting two and two together. You can imagine them as young Jewish boys learning the Torah and understanding some of these things Saying, oh my gosh, this is all happening here and it's happened in our lives. And so we come today. We learn about this at this very special place, at the wedding at Cana. And we do this so that we might believe in him. May your joy come from him. May your faith come from him. May you rejoice in the covenant relationship with him that he has made us righteous what a joy that is. Let's pray together. Um, Lord, we take this truth. We hold on to it in our hearts, God, that you have given us a life in abundance in you, Jesus Christ, so we cannot fill it with any more. So we hold on to that today. We believe in you today, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.